It's good to be back in New York. Is it? Yeah, really good. I had a, a couple epiphanies in the in the Vatican that stuck with me that I thought was funny was vanity projects to make a portrait or some type of marble sculpture. But my favorite example of indulgence is this big red marble bathtub that they would fill with donkey milk for Cleopatra. Skin or just like wellness routine? Donkey milk's good for your skin, but I was like, wow, like... How do you get that much donkey milk? I, I could just imagine them going, summon the donkey milkers. <laughs> and, and and like, how do you, apparently you have to get like 700 donkeys. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot of donkey milk. I think it puts the Elon controversy in context, right? People versus Algorithms is a podcast dedicated to detecting patterns in media, business, and culture. I'm Brian Marcy, and each week I'm joined by Troy Young, writer of the People versus Algorithms newsletter and a longtime media executive who's most recently president of Hearst Magazines. This week, we tackle everything from the fate of Twitter under Elon Musk to how you build brands in a media environment dictated by flows and about why, in many ways, we're all cheaters to a degree as we augment our abilities with the help of technology. Thank you to Alex Schleifer of Universal Entities, who is a creative partner and producer of this podcast. Chase Sparks, Pod Help Us, helped edit this podcast. If you have any feedback, please do send me a note. I'm bmarcy at gmail.com. And if you like it and you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Having a podcast means that we have to talk about Elon Musk owning Twitter. And I'm torn on this thing because I think he's going to burn it all down. And I think that's overall a good thing because even though I am addicted to Twitter, um, to me, it's like cigarettes. Um, you have to quit it at some point. And so I, I kind of, I'm kind of rooting for him to um, burn it all down. I was considering making cigarettes our good product this week. <laughs> oh, shit. But anyway, I have a couple of thoughts. One is, I have a funny analogy, I think. Um, one is, stop it with like, oh my God, I can't believe they texted such facile things to one another. What do you think happens when people text people? That's what they do. It's like just above writing on a bathroom wall. When I text you, God forbid that all those texts get published somewhere. Oh, I know. They want to believe that the other people are operating on this different plane. And in fact, like they're not. They're just regular people. That's absolutely true. What did you fucking expect would be revealed in a string of texts besides, <laughs> oh my God, here's his business strategy. We figured it out. Well, so what does he do now? Here's the analogy, Brian. <laughs> Twitter is North Korea. Oh, no God. one knows what to fucking do with it. <laughs> okay. It's North Korea. So what you just try to contain it and like it like pops up every now and again with some horrifying threat to humanity. Um, <laughs> well, I can remember. The thing is, I remember talking with you about Twitter and they figured out a way to monetize without advertising. They're going to use data and stuff. Remember they were building platform and they were the, with the open API and it was like the height of like web two. Those words never came out of my mouth, but Ridiculous. let's pretend maybe you it was some, maybe, maybe it was someone it was else. Neil Vogel or something like that. <laughs> okay. General purpose microblogging with a follower model 
right? And identity will never be a good ad model the way it's done today. I think it's a really challenging ad model. It's challenging to get in the flow and there's no signal like you have on something like Google, which is you're looking for something probably commercial or otherwise. And as such, it's really valuable. So what do you do with Twitter? I mean, clearly there's ways when you have that much scale to monetize it, right? So the next thing you go to is you say, well, is there a constituency where we create outsized value where we can charge them for the product? Is there a subscription model? I'm skeptical. Maybe if you have a huge number of followers and you want more data on that and more tools to access them, et cetera, we will put up some type of toll booth around that. Maybe. And there, there's so many people on there, you probably could figure out how to do that. Then there's the Elon Musk kind of one app to rule them all strategy, which is why don't we have super apps in America? They have super apps in China. And why don't we extend Twitter's functionality. We have identity. We add payments. We start to have it be the app that rules them all. Wouldn't you start with something that has mainstream acceptance and then add the payments and other stuff? You mean like Facebook? Well, not anymore. I mean, Facebook is on the decline. I think the answer to that question is that you have platform inertia, and it's that you're trying to change something that nobody wants you to change. The leadership hasn't done a good job of driving a clear product agenda. So Alex, you have a slightly optimistic take that like Twitter can actually work. I'm the pessimist. Yeah, I think it can work. I think it could be at least twice as good as it is now. That exchange between Elon and the CEO, where Elon says, what have you done this week? He could have asked, what have you done in the last five years? And he could have asked the same of Jack Dorsey. Jack Dorsey was complaining about the fact that he couldn't do anything. He was CEO. They didn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. What did you get done this week? It reminded me of you, Troy. What? (laughs) It sounds like something you would say. Well, there's one other thing I thought as I left the Vatican. Okay. One is in which building is this? the 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 the, the uh, what's his face is you know when he painted the ceiling. Who is it, Brent? Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo or Michelangelo? Michelangelo. Let's call him Mike. As he pr- progressed across the ceiling, he realized that you couldn't see the small figures that he p- was painting. And he steadily optimized the execution of his work to make it better for the viewer standing below him. He also painted standing up the whole time, which I found amazing because it would hurt your back. But what I did notice as I left and walked through the narrow streets of Rome is that you can get a great leather bag of all types in Rome, beautifully stitched, nice tan leather, all that stuff for like under a couple hundred bucks. But if you walk down the road to the high-end department store and you go to one of the boutiques to buy a branded bag by, say, Loe, a brand that I like, it's still going to cost you $2,400. There's no R buff the strong American dollar, but it just suggests something that we all know and something that you know is very true with the Vatican is that brands matter. 
stories matter. And the difference between a Rome handbag that's well-made is $200 to one with a story is $2,400. So that's a big multiple. And it's amazing to me that the Vatican is the largest, most visited museum on the planet. And the entire enterprise for hundreds and hundreds of years has been sustained with excellent storytelling. And that's pretty cool. Um, okay, let's talk actually about brand building. It's really difficult to build a brand these days, or is it the same as it's always been? The thing about building brands in the old days is that it was intimately tied into the media structure and that basically brands represented a shortcut to a decision-making process. The brands that made their way to a place where they could buy mass media to reinforce that mental connection could hold their position for a long, long time because they could essentially repeat it and take apart your brain effectively and hold their position in the market because of the power of the brand reinforced by mass media. And those opportunities are fewer and fewer, right? So we, we don't have the, the mechanism of building brands is the, you know, a few really scaled companies with economics that allow them to spend a lot of money on media, like insurance companies, but others have to be way more enterprising. And you asked the question, Brian, can you build a brand on TikTok? Mm -hmm. And I had to think about it because I didn't, I don't think you can, not certainly not in the same way that you would have before. So. That notion of kind of create a, a distilled message and repeat it as a way. I mean, obviously, the brand attributes need to live in the product and, and any other distribution point that you have. But that kind of reinforcing repetitive nature of mass media brand building doesn't exist. And I don't know how you would ever systematically do that on TikTok. So to me, you got to then become, you know, I use the example in one of my notes of a company like Vacation. And you, which is basically, I don't know what it is, a sunscreen company, a packaged goods company, a lifestyle company. It's the first vibes-based brand. Right. They tell stories on the web. They tell stories on social media. Um, you end up having a very strong point of view and a clear idea. And then you bring that to life in lots of different ways. And there's so many tools now for you to tell those stories in incredible ways that I guess that's where I landed on the brand building thing. It's It's like, you just have to be a great kind of storyteller and a great creator. And you have to, you know, kind of work as diligently as anybody else who's sort of jacking the airwaves. You know, you got to break the discussion down category by category. For example, at like pantry goods, there's been so much innovation there, right? From like Fly by Jing to like the huge explosion in seltzer brands, all kinds of drink brands, non-alcoholic brands, packaged foods, all of that. How do you create a brand there? You know, ultimately, you know, you're, you're looking for you know, they're, they're doing all the things, you know, a lot of them try to sell direct and, and use performance media to do it. Others look for big retail lockups, like the big thing for Fly by Jing was getting in Costco and getting in Walmart. Um, but uh, so it would seem to me that with those products, like physical distribution becomes even more important. Um, and certainly the, the, the power of a curator to introduce those products becomes really important. 
Fly by Jing's got a nice story and nice packaging. There's a ton of different chili oils out there that you can buy. What is a brand? I mean, just ask yourself, is there a brand that's found its way under your radar by some means digitally? I really like what this woman, Kyla Scanlon, is building. She's using TikTok and very modern storytelling and combining it with economics and finance. And it's really interesting. She is... She is able to take a topic like quantitative easing and make it understandable to non-economists. But what about brick and mortar consumer brands? I can't think of anything new that has lasted more than a month. Can you? Well, there's one that I'm very curious about called Foxtrot. Half of their products are house brands. They're incredibly well-designed and playful. They do things like their own wine brand, their own beer brand. They do tastings. They have a kind of... um 30-minute delivery thing, and they have a membership program. So it's digital innovation and house brands and a store environment that you can chill in. And it's the stuff that you would find at a at your corner shop in, you know, in New York City. So and I want to like hang out at a souped-up bodega. It's a souped-up bodega. I'm wondering, though, on this topic, though, if you guys could help me on the definition of new media, Brian. Because for some reason, this is nagging me in, and usually I follow these instincts, but I feel like it's a moment of change. If old media was kind of powerful brand middlemen, largely defined by media types, so Time Magazine or CNN, etc., new media, as we refer to it, or digital media, replaced old media with, you know, I think it was defined by you know, powerful kind of platforms, siphoning content from the open web and, you know, the connection of social media, professional content, people scrambling to keep up with all that. You know, you and I are both part of that. Certainly was programmatic advertising and this kind of new art of, you know, of content marketing, I suppose, trying to masquerade as something useful. And then to me, what happened is COVID happened. And we found out that we could really quickly connect the whole world through our computer. And the streaming kind of thing totally shifted from broadcast traditions. Then TikTok accelerated this thing to everything being video and being just powered by, you know, eager contributors that wanted to be America's, you know, funniest home video creators. And then... You know, and that's all driven by tools, as we've talked about before. And affiliate models, which I don't know if we have room in this, but one of the reasons I was in Rome was to to think affiliate. And I was kind of blown away by what I learned, but I'll get back to that in a minute. And now everybody's saying, well, we don't want these big platforms. We want more honest, authentic connections in smaller groups. We, you know, people are writing about what it's like to live without an algorithm. And I'm trying to define, to get to my point, what is new, new media? What is it? What is this moment? What are we, what are we shifting toward? And that's what I need from you today, Brian. I think you're going to have a reaction to the algorithmic media. And I call it more like humanistic media. But I think it's going to be going completely back to being about people versus algorithms. 
I was in Portugal and someone was like, oh, you should check out this amazing bookstore. And I go there and there's a crowd of like hundreds out front and they're selling tickets to get into the bookstore. So it ceased becoming a bookstore because it's Instagram worthy. Forget about selling books. We're just selling tickets. <laughs> Everyone wants the same experiences. And I feel like there's going to be a reaction to that. Part of the new media is going to be going backwards and to being handcrafted. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. I just think that this would kind of contrast my thinking with like the Vatican, which is like the systems of media access control have been fully dismantled from creation all the way to other parts of the value chain. And so there's no like gatekeeper or all that stuff. But this idea that nothing works anymore if it, there's a flow to new media. Display advertising was a disruption of the flow. And when I watch my kids consume and create, like nothing ever stands in their way of what they want, whether it's TV on demand or making a TikTok or accessing content or just like jamming something into their phone to get an answer to anything. To me, it's like modern media is just flow kind of traversing the same ground over and over again. And I want a new way to say something. We're all obviously preoccupied with talking about change in media. It feels like a moment because largely because I think it's pretty clear that Facebook is dying. It's pretty clear that people don't want that construct. It's pretty clear that video is the dominant communication medium now, and that changes everything. And it's also pretty clear to me that the interconnectivity, particularly around media and commerce, changes models. So I guess it's all those things together that makes me feel like it's a moment. But it's also a moment because of Elon and Twitter and all the shit that's going on. But won't we just have more ephemeral brands? And maybe that's good. It gets really awkward when brands are past their prime and you have to witness them in their Willie Mays on the Mets days. Willie Mays spent like a couple of years at the end of his career on the Mets and it was not good. So maybe brands should just burn fast and then burn out because it just feels like brands are going to be more ephemeral than ever. But brands that are rooted in complexity and craft, they, they stick around for a long time, right? Whether it's like Samsung or Kohler or Macintosh amplifiers or Ford cars. All right, I want to talk about cheating. I don't know if you saw, but we're in a little bit of a mini golden era of cheating scandals in obscure areas. Right now, there is an ongoing cheating scandals in chess, in poker, and also in fishing. Now, the fishing one is the greatest, I think, is because apparently if you're in a walleye competition, the winner is determined by the weight of the walleye that have been caught. And so, of course, one of the competitors, and there's a viral video to this effect, was stuffing his walleye with lead weights and also, perversely, with other fish fillets. He was actually putting the fish fillet inside the fish. Like from McDonald's? <laughs> no, like an actual uncooked fish fillet. Finding almost eight pounds of lead weights and a bunch of fresh-looking fish fillets inside. A filleted fish! Meanwhile, Jake Runyon, still standing there, asked point-blank what he was thinking. I mean, it was kind of funny because like of how intense it was, but there's apparently a lot of money at stake, relatively speaking, in these kind of fishing tournaments. I found it amusing that digital media has always tried to be, you know, oh, it's the most measurable, like forget about the John Wanamaker thing. And there's more cheating, it seems like, in digital media than there ever was in analog media. And it seems like the more we want certainty and we think technology can create these level playing fields, it turns out that it actually creates like more ways to cheat. That's, I guess, why in my town they called guys that were sort of 
dubious. They call them walleye stuffers. <laughs> <laughs> Is this in Brooklyn or in Saskatoon? <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I'm not from Saskatoon. I'm from S Saskatchewan. Okay. You know what I think is interesting about that point? It's this. We all cheat. We're all cheaters. And I'll tell you how I cheat. So the internet kind of makes us superhumans, right? And if you're writing something or you're communicating with someone, you can always fortify your knowledge and intelligence with the computer really easily. Now take that a step further. I can now do rich, interesting illustrations in my newsletter using the AI image generator or text to image. And so in some ways, the computer's making me superhuman, but it's the line between the help of a computer versus them doing too much. Now, here's another thing. I've been playing a lot of backgammon on my phone on the subway. I like the game a lot. Now, I have a little light bulb at the top where I can hit it and it tells me what move to make. And I look at that information critically and think, you know, is the computer right or not? But it's a helpful little tool. I don't use it when I'm playing friends and cheat that way, but I do use it when I'm playing the computer. And I sort of think about it as like, even if I won, it's legit because sometimes I overrule the computer and make my own move. But I think that all of that is connected, right? We are fully augmented. And the line between being a kind of augmented in a way that's legit and then getting the computer to make your chess move is becoming increasingly fuzzy. Like the kid, there's one other cheating example that you missed was the kid who won the art competition with generative art. All uh, right. Yeah, that's cheating. Busted. Yeah, it's cheating. It's cheating. Okay, Troy, what's the good product? <laughs> what's the good product? Well, thanks for asking, Brian. I had a couple thoughts this week, and obviously I was traveling, so they're connected to that. One of the things I just have to comment on, and I think this is true in Paris and in Rome, there's all these restaurants throughout the sort of, you know, touristy kind of neighborhoods that, you know, have nice terraces and you can go out and you can have a glass of wine and, you know, they all have the same menus. And actually, the food at most of them is kind of shitty. It's kind of mediocre, particularly when you live in a city like New York. Anything that's not good fails. And the most restaurants, I mean, from stretching from certainly from my neighborhood to anywhere in Manhattan, or if you're just slightly selective, are really good. So there's a lot of average restaurants. I went to this place, however, called Rossioli, and it was so fantastic. Everything just tasted better. The burrata tasted better. The salami tasted better. The oil tasted better. The bread tasted better and the tomatoes tasted better. It was just fantastic. So that's just something I had on my mind. I think when you go to a place like Rome, you really have to be discerning to kind of find the places that just don't fill up Americans. Like the crappy, like you're in Rome, eat, eat you know, the cacio de pepe at the, you know, at the local pasta place. I walked, I think one day, you know, like 17 miles or something like that. And, you know, I used to really hate, particularly in like Los Angeles, all of the scooters that were strewn all over Venice. You know, those little scooters from Bird and the like. And I was just like, oh, God, who let these fucking things in? But feeling the need to jet around and go see a couple of things in Rome, I used my Uber app to scan the, what's the Uber-related scooter? I forget Lime. which one it is. The Lime scooter. It's Lime. And it was effortless. Used the app, hopped on it, and it was a great product. 
really good product. I, you know, it has all the modern stuff because so it has kind of geofencing. So if you're in like around the Coliseum, it'll say, don't park here. It barks at you. I like that. It barks at you and it's reasonably quick and it's really fun to zoom around. And I felt youthful and alive and free and like the world was my oyster. I feel like European cities have adopted those more broadly than American cities. But maybe it's yeah. just because in New York, the, the scooters don't exist. Well, I've changed my mind. I thought they were an eyesore and now I really enjoyed them. They sprung up overnight in true Silicon Valley fashion. All right, Troy, we're going we're gonna to stop there on, on this one. Thanks for listening. Please send your feedback. You can email me at bmorrissey at gmail.com. Great, everyone.